So we are starting a new series this morning, and uh, we're going to be here for another year. We're going to be here uh, for, for not even a month, just uh, four weeks. Um, I know some of you are glad about that. But what we're going to be doing is we're looking at a series called The Beloved Community. Does anybody know that phrase, The Beloved Community? Anybody know where that phrase comes from? Anybody? Huh? Huh? Really? Ryan Darnes. Uh, it, it's a phrase that uh, was popularized by uh, 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 Dr. Martin Luther King. He, he wasn't the originator of it, but uh, he, he is really the one who took that phrase and, um, and, and, and kind of expounded on it and, uh, and made it central to uh, the civil rights movement. Um, And it's a phrase that I want us to hang on to uh, this morning. Dr. King, the first time that he uses this phrase is in uh, some of his first writings right after the uh, Montgomery uh, bus boycotts in 1955. And he writes about the boycotts that the purpose, the end is, and this is a quote, uh, reconciliation, redemption, the creation of the beloved community. And it's important, I think, for us to, to have an image like this because we're going to talk about some, some challenging things over the next uh, four weeks. And it would be easy for us to frame these things strictly as, as negative, as what is wrong with the world. One of Dr. King's geniuses was uh, understanding that it wasn't just pointing out what is wrong with the world, but pointing out what God is doing in and the, and the way God is remaking the world. And so he put this uh, pretty powerful image in front of people of the beloved community, of reconciliation, of redemption, of healing, of restoration, of justice. Not just the negative, not just what was wrong with the world, but what God was doing in powerful ways in the world. And so I want us to try to do that together over the next Four weeks. We're going to look at hard things. We're going to acknowledge hard things. There will be moments where I, at least, am very uncomfortable. But all of this is done because God is present in our world. Amen. We talk about these things. We, we can be confident as we look at the evils and injustices in our world because the cross is empty. It's not an accident that we're starting this maybe tricky series the Sunday after Easter. I I hope and I desire that for us as we look at injustice in our world, as we look at issues of race and racism and ethnocentrism in our world, that we will start with an empty tomb. That, That we don't have to try to figure these things out on our own, that we don't have to in some way get our minds around everything, but that we can know That Jesus Christ, the Son of God, has overcome sin, death, and evil. Amen? Amen. So even as there are very hard realities, there is always hope. For the Christian, there is always, always hope. Yes? Yes. 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 Uh, Let me say a couple things before we get into our sermon today. First, if you're not in a community group Bible study, this would be a great time to join one. Why? Because I'm going to say some things that you're going to disagree with. 
or that aren't going to make sense to you. We're going to look at some Bible passages in new ways, and you're going to have questions. And our community groups are the best place to begin digging into some of these things together. Uh, to, to begin asking questions of each other, of hearing one another's stories, of, uh, uh, of pulling apart the scriptures in new ways to see what God is saying to us as people. Uh, it, it, the community groups in our church is the place where we're honest with each other, where we trust one another, where we can ask difficult questions. Yes? Those of you who are in groups. Um, stop by the welcome table on your way out, or grab me, and I will get you connected with a, a community group. Here's my last disclaimer this morning before we we start in. I cannot and will not address everything that's related to race, ethnicity, injustice in our world over the next four weeks. Is that okay with you? It better be because I just can't and I won't. Um, I, I, I uh, I am a white man comes from a specific place and time and experience. You understand, my, my view on the things that we'll look at this morning is rather limited. I have blinders. There are things I see, there are things that I've learned, there are a few things that I've experienced, but there are a whole lot of things that I know very little about. Yes? It's another reason you should be in a community group. So my commitment to you today is to do my best to listen to what God is saying to our church, and I do that by listening to you, and to speak what I believe God has for us. But please, please understand, we are barely scratching the surface in these four weeks. Can you be okay with that? So, so I imagine for, for each of us, at some point over the next four weeks, you're going to be like, now, why are we not talking about this? Why has he not said anything about that? That's okay. Hopefully, we have a lot of time together as a church, and we'll be able to come back to this and have more conversations and dig into this more. Yes? Yes. Okay? All right. Uh, The last little disclaimer here is that there are terms uh, that uh, I will use throughout this series, terms like race, ethnicity, uh, and I'm going to define those more fully next week, okay? So we'll spend a little bit of time next week actually defining some language, some common language for us. I don't think I need to do that today. Uh, but it's just, just, just so you know, there'll be a little bit more definition next week, okay? Let me pray for us. Jesus, we ask that you would now um, uh, speak to us in the way that, that we need to hear from you. Uh, Lord God, you know my own fears around this. You know my own insecurities. You know my uh, uh, limited perspective. You know my ongoing prejudices and biases. You know uh, the areas that I uh, have to grow. You know my weaknesses. You know my sin. Uh, You know the ways that because of my race and gender, I have been uh, privileged in our society, most of the times completely unaware of that privilege. Lord, you know the things that we carry with us uh, this morning. You know the ways that we have uh, been formed by our culture. We know the ways that we have believed lies. We know the way, you know the ways that we've, be, we've become uh, complacent to the way things are. You, you know everything that we bring with us this morning, Lord Jesus, and we take great comfort in that. We ask that you uh, speak to us exactly where we are. Speak to us um, as people who have been 
changed by you and are being changed by you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. My sermon title this morning is Two Cities and One Mission. Two Cities, One Mission. I come to this title because of a question as I was studying for this. And the question was this. Why is there so much diversity in the world? Have you ever asked that question? Why is there so much diversity in the world? Maybe I'm the only one who asked that question. I just find that interesting. I mean, we could have a world of people who all look the same, right? Same height, hair color, shape of face, right? We, we, we could, but we don't. We, we live in a world of incredible diversity. Would you agree? Why? Why, why is there so much diversity? Diversity in the world. Now, there's a couple of ways to answer this uh, question. Uh, the first is to, to, to look at the in, uh, environmental factors that shape us to be who we are. One of my favorite books um, is called Guns, Germs, and Steel by Jared Diamond. Has anybody read that book? Really? Just me? Uh, it's not a theological book. It's not a Christian book. It's written, I think, by a professor at Stanford, I think. And um, he's like an anthropologist, and, and, and he, he comes to this question of uh, why is it that certain civilizations are shaped in certain ways and other civilizations look differently? What, what is it that allows certain civilizations to behave in, 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 in distinct ways and other civilizations in different ways? Why aren't we all the same? Um, and to kind of give away a 500-page book in a sentence, he says it's the, it's the environment that surrounds you. Right? It's, it's not that certain people are, are kind of born with innate things that make them certain way. It's that over time, environments shape who you are, yeah, shape entire cultures of people. Things like climate, um, the, the, the food that's available, what sorts of crops uh, can be grown. Over time, cultures and traditions and histories develop shaped by the environment that you've come up in. Does that make sense? Okay. I, I think that, that that's a, a, a good way of answering on one level this question of why is there so much diversity in the world? I think there's a theological way that we can answer this question as well. And, and, and it's pretty simple. God loves diversity. There's an environmental way that we can talk about this, how we've been shaped over history and, and these sorts of things. But I think a, a pretty simple way is to just say, seems like God loves diversity. And so it's with this starting point that I come to my sermon title, Two Cities and One Mission. My job this morning is a little bit to convince you that God loves diversity. That the diversity even reflected in this room right here is not accidental. Is purposeful, is desired by God, in fact. Two cities and one mission. If God loves diversity, then I think we might want to ask, why does God love diversity? And then I hope you, as someone with a slightly critical mind, is saying, well, how do we know that God loves diversity? Why does God love diversity, and how do we know that God loves diversity? Why? I have no idea. Why does God love diversity? I don't, I don't really know. The, the, the Bible is somewhat silent on this, and whenever we get to questions 
asking why of God, we need to be humble in our attempts to answer. Let me just kind of hypothesize with you for a second. Perhaps a diverse humanity better reflects the image of God. We're told in Genesis that that man and woman, Adam and Eve, are made, are formed in the image of God. They somehow reflect, they're not God, they're they're not all of God, but they somehow are created in God's image. And so theologians will say humanity reflects something of God. Could it be that we need a diverse humanity to reflect as much of God as possible? That doesn't seem like a long shot to me. Maybe it's that we better understand who God is when we have the resources of a diverse humanity. You see, I'm a, I'm a white man, and I've been shaped in certain kinds of ways, and so I read the Bible in certain kinds of ways, and I think about God in certain sorts of ways, and I pray in certain sorts of ways, and I think about worship in certain sorts of ways, and I think that these are the most important questions about God. But when I am a part of a church like this and I listen to you, I understand that my view of God is actually rather small. And all of a sudden I hear Christine Vilas asking certain questions about who God is and saying this is how I, and I realize I've missed that section of scripture somehow. Or I've read it in a completely different way somehow. Or I watch David worship. I hear David engage with God in worship and I say, somehow I've I've missed a little bit of what it means to be a worshiper. Does that make sense? Maybe, maybe this is why God loves a diverse humanity. And maybe it's simply that God rejoices in the beauty and the complexities of distinct cultures. Maybe it's just that. Maybe it's just that, that, that something about the complexities of cultures and the beauties of different cultures somehow just allows God to rejoice in us, his people. I I don't know. I think all of these are possibilities from what we know about God in the scriptures. But I think we can say a little bit more about the how question. How do we know that God loves diversity? And I I want to say this morning that we can know this because this is actually the story of the Scriptures from beginning to end. So let me show you what I mean by this, by looking at two different cities. First, the city of Babel. We'll start in Genesis, Genesis chapter 9 this morning, verses 1 and then verse 7. Let me give you a little bit of a backstory here before we look at this. Anybody familiar with Noah and the ark? Do you remember that story? Yes? The earth is flooded, Noah and his family are on an ark, the flood recedes, they come out of the ark, they're kind of figuring out what it means now to live on this world, and God comes to Noah and he makes a covenant with him. He, in a sense, commissions Noah and his family, and this is what he says in verse 1 of chapter 9, be fruitful and increase in number and fill the earth. Noah, one of your mandates for you and your family is to have a lot of babies, to expand, to increase, to spread out. That's key. Spread out. Fill the earth. He repeats the language in verse 7. Noah, be fruitful and increase in number. Multiply on the earth and increase Upon it. The commission, maybe succinctly put, is Noah, y'all need to spread out. 
You're up on this mountain right now where the ark landed. You've got the people you're closest to. But, but it's time to move. Time to spread out. Time to fill the earth. If that's the commission, the implication of this commission, we might say is, Noah, it's time to diversify. I, 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 I think that Jared Diamond, his book Guns, Germs, and Steel, is on to something when he says that the, 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 the environment that you live within is going to shape you in certain ways, and new cultures are going to develop out of those environments. Things like climate, like food, like uh, 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 the terrain around you, like the, 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 the plant life, all of these things can't help but shape people, cultures. Noah, spread out, leave, and diversify. I'm, I think my, 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 my case, if you're a little skeptical, if you're a little skeptical, I think my case is going to be made a little bit more strongly here. God basically says, Noah, it's time to go. It's time, to, it's, it's time for the story to continue to evolve to inhabit the world, to receive it as a gift from God. Go, spread, leave, inhabit, increase in number, diversify. Can I tell you that unless you are really out of the norm, that that commission strikes the human heart in such a way that we, we don't want to obey it. We don't want to leave. We don't want to go. We don't want to spread out. Can I tell you that we like our own kind? Yeah? We like our own place. We like our own food. We like our own story, our own histories. We like homogeneity. Yes? We like being around people who think like us, look like us, sound like us. We like homogeneity. Uh, maybe about 30, 40 years ago, there was a, a, a professor at a, at a seminary, and he recognized this human instinct towards homogeneity. And he said, we just need to acknowledge that this is just true for all humans. Human people like to be with other human people who are like them. Let's just acknowledge our desire for homogeneity, and let's build churches around this idea. He, so he called this the, the, the homogeneity unit principle. Hup. And, and, and you laugh, but this idea actually became the predominant idea in American Christianity over the past few decades. And, and Michelle Dodson can back me up on this. She knows more about these things than I do. And so, and so pastors began to start churches and plan their churches around a certain type of person. And they would identify what that person is like, and then they would structure themselves, their location, their worship, their activities, the preaching, all of these things around that ideal person. And you know what? It works really well. It works really well. Churches grew like crazy. This was really kind of the advent of the megachurch. Churches grew like crazy, and you would visit a church like this, and some of you have, and you look around and you're like, you can tell really quickly is this a place for me or not? Right? Because either you, you were in mind or you were definitely not in mind when this church was planned. You see? This is frankly just the, the, the state of the human heart. We like homogeneity. So God comes to Noah and he says, spread out. Go. Now watch what happens two chapters later. Verse, uh, chapter 11, verses 1 through 9. 
Now the whole world had one language and a common speech. Of course, right? Right? They were all on the boat together. One language, one common speech. As men moved eastward, they found a plain in Shinar and settled there. Now that, that, that basically says they stopped. God said, go, spread out, fill the earth. They started to move eastward and then they found a sweet looking plain and they stopped. They stopped. They said to each other, come, let us make bricks and bake them thoroughly. They used bricks instead of stone and tar for mortar. Then they said, come, let us build ourselves a city with a tower that reaches to the heavens so that we may make a name for ourselves. Now look, look what they say. And not be scattered over the face of the whole earth. Understand that that humanity knew very clearly what it was that God had asked them to do. Go, spread, scatter, fill the earth. You see, in their mind, it's crystal clear what God has mandated for them. And so it's not just that they come to this nice plain and like, oh, it's a perfect place for a city. No, 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 no. What's the impulse here? We won't be scattered. We've got our common language. We know each other. This is a good place to set up shop. And if we do that, if we build a city, a tower to the sky, God will not be able to scatter us over the earth. Verses 5 through 9. But the Lord came down to see the city and the tower that the men were building. The Lord said, can I just say something fun? This cracks me up here. The Lord came down. You know why I think that's funny? Because their goal is to build a tower that's so high it goes up into the heavens. Not that God had to come down, but I think he's like, I, better, I can't see it from up here, so I'm going to come down and take a look at your awesome tower. Some good brickwork there. Verse 6. Then the Lord said, If as one people speaking the same language, having the same culture, coming from the same traditions. If they have the ability to do this, then nothing they plan to do will be impossible for them. Come, let us go down and confuse their language so that they will not understand each other. So the Lord scattered them from there over all the earth and they stopped building a city. That is why it was called Babel, because there the Lord confused the language of the whole world. From there, the Lord scattered them over the face of the whole earth. They said, if we settle here, we will not be scattered. In verse 8, so the Lord scattered them. In verse 9, from there, the Lord scattered them over the face of the earth. God's original intention, his heart, is for a diverse humanity. Why? Again, not not sure how much we can say about that. But it seems that God's intention right after Noah gets off the boat is, I, I want diversity. I want you to move to new places and begin to reflect those places. I want you to, to, to learn what it means to inhabit my creation as people made in my image. And when they try to stop, when they try to maintain their homogeneity, Okay, we'll confuse your language if that's what it takes. And God scattered them, and God scattered them. God's original intention is for a diverse humanity. Cultures are not a mistake. Do you hear that? 
Cultures are not a mistake. Ethnicities are not a mistake. The things that make us different are not a mistake. You see. Uh, this is why when, 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 when President Obama has to, not has to, but decides to turn over his, his what? His, his long form birth certificate. Because of course he'd already turned over his birth certificate. This is why when this happens, it's not just politically whatever. Fill in the blank. It's, it, it's theologically evil. Because what's being said, what's being communicated in so many words is you are not like us. We wouldn't ask. We haven't asked a white president to defend his birth certificate multiple times in so many different ways. But you are different. And this is the air that we breathe. We breathe air that says no cultures, ethnicities, some are better than others. There are neutral cultures and ethnicities, and then there are those that need to legitimize themselves somehow. You see, this isn't just, just for some of us, like maybe if you're a Democrat, Republican, you think about this politically, but you need to understand theologically there's something being communicated about somebody reprehensible. Why? Because if, if I'm right, if diversity is God's intention from the beginning, then what's played out in our country in this specific instance is just opposed to the heart of God. Amen? Amen. So we have Babel, and I, and I, and I hope that we can, we can agree that, that from the beginning God has said, Diversity in those created in my image is my desire. It's what I want. It's how things should be. Okay, so, so let's start at Babel, and then now let's, let's jump way ahead to, to the New Jerusalem. We're going to look at a Revelation for a second. The last from the first book in the Bible to the last book in the Bible. Um, and Revelation paints this picture of a city called the New Jerusalem. It's one thing for us to acknowledge God's heart for diversity, but, but to, to carry this forward a little bit, where is God taking history? For, for many of us, it's hard to think about diversity without thinking about disparity. Yeah? That's how our world works. And so we, we maybe pull forward a little bit. We know the past, but what is God going to be doing in the future? We're going to look at a few different passages in Revelation. Um, do you know that Revelation is a weird book? I'm just for, I'm saying there's some stuff in there. And, it, and people interpret Revelation a lot of different ways, okay? And we're not going to go there today. Um, but most biblical scholars will agree that in Revelation we, we catch truths. Maybe not specific details, but we catch truths about where God is taking God's creation. And what God is one day going to fulfill when God's Son, when Jesus returns and sets all things right. So that's where we can stand pretty firm, okay? Maybe not on all the details, but we know that we get a glimpse of, of what God is going to do, what God has already accomplished in Jesus. And one of these things, 
One of these truths that we find in Revelation is that God's heart for diversity within humanity carries from Babel all the way to the New Jerusalem. That doesn't change. Revelation chapter 5, verses 9 and 10. This is written by the Apostle John, who had known Jesus, who had followed Jesus. And he sees a vision, and he writes about it in verse 9. And they, he's talking about God's people, they sang a new song saying, You are worthy to take the scroll and to open its seals, because you were slain, and with your blood you purchased for God persons from every tribe and language and people and nation. You have made them to be a kingdom and priests to serve our God, and they will reign on earth. John is reflecting here in his vision on the crucified and resurrected Christ, who has shed his blood, and because of this, is, has restored and redeemed people of every culture, of every ethnicity, of every language, tongue, tribe, nation, into a new kingdom of priests. Yes? You with me still? Chapter 7, verses 9 through 10. After this, John again talking, I looked and there before me was a great multitude that no one could count from every nation, every tribe, people, and language standing before the throne and before the Lamb. This is an image of people worshiping Christ. They were wearing white robes and were holding palm branches in their hands and they cried out in a loud voice, Salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. Here we have God's eternal worshiping community. Here is a vision of God's kingdom come in its fullness. And who are the worshipers? Everybody. Us. You see, every tribe, every tongue, every nation is represented at the throne worshiping the crucified and resurrected Christ. Chapter 21, verses 1 through 4. This is right before the book ends. John says, Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and first earth had passed away, and there was no longer any sea. I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride, beautifully dressed for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Look, God's dwelling place is now among the people, and He will dwell with them, and they will be His people. And God himself will be with them and will be their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes. There will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain for the old order of things has passed away. That's, that's, that's beautiful imagery, isn't it? Here we have God's new city, the new Jerusalem, coming down and inhabiting the world. And it's the same diverse worshiping community that gathers around this city, lives within this city. God's people are a diverse people reconciled through Jesus in this vision. This is the vision of our future church. This is where God is taking the world, a restored creation, where God dwells among a people who live and worship from within their cultural distinctions. You see? It's not like, well, if you were born in Africa, you all kind of you worship from over here, and then if you're, if you're an Irish person, then you. This is around the throne, inhabiting this new city, people from every tongue, tribe, and nation reconciled into a new kingdom of priests. You see, worshiping God, the Lamb who was slain, who's resurrected. 
We have Babel. We have the New Jerusalem. And this is what I mean when I say that God has one mission that kind of goes between these two. God's mission of reconciling the world to himself has not changed. It was true at Babel. It's true one day at the New Jerusalem. And guess what? It's true today. It's true now. Two cities, one mission. God has been reconciling the world to himself from beginning to end, and this mission has not changed. People do not have to first change their culture, their ethnicity, or their race to be acceptable to God. God is reconciling us as we are and as we always will be. Do you ever think about that? I have a friend who pastors a church in Houston. He's a Korean-American. His church is primarily second-generation Korean-Americans whose parents immigrated to Texas. And he says to his church, he says, we will worship at the throne for all of eternity as people whose ethnicity is Korean. That's not going to go away. That's not going to change. There's not, a new, there's not a neutral that we're going to change into. God created us how we are, and we will worship God in that for all of eternity. You see, culture is good. Ethnicity is good. It is God's intention. Is the, I, can't tell, I can't read you all this morning. Is this like, duh? Are you, is it, everybody like, this is so remedial. Where are, is this... Are you tracking with me? Yes? Yes? Christine, give me a thumbs up. Okay. All right. All right. We do not live in Babel. And we do not live in the New Jerusalem. We live in Chicago. We live in a city where all around us we see examples of, of, of behaviors, of ideas, of structures and systems that actually would seem to oppose much of what we've seen today in the scripture. We live between two cities, as it were, but God's mission remains the same. We live in Chicago. We live in a city that is known disparity and divisions among its diversity from the very beginning. Uh, in in, in uh, 1919, uh, July 27th of 1919, uh, less than a mile from this school, uh, there was a, a young man by the name of Eugene Williams who was swimming out at a beach off of 29th Street. Um, a, 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 an African-American man, young man, swimming off of uh, 29th Street, and, and um, the beaches weren't officially segregated then. They were unofficially segregated. And somebody made the call that Eugene Williams had swam into the, the white water. And so they, some, some, some young white men walked out onto a jetty, and they began throwing rocks at Eugene Williams as he swam. And eventually hit him in the head, and he drowned on July 27th of 1919, less than a mile from where we sit. We don't live in Babylon or the New Jerusalem, we live in Chicago. Eugene Williams drowned and a, a, a policeman was there and there were eyewitnesses 
And the policeman refused to arrest the white man who threw the stone. He arrested a, a black man instead for causing trouble. After this, um, riots broke out in this neighborhood. This neighborhood wasn't known as Bronzeville then. It was known as the Black Belt. It was the only neighborhood at that time, at the turn of the century, where African-American folks moving up from the South to escape Jim Crow laws and to find uh, jobs in Chicago were able to move safely. And riots broke out in, in this neighborhood. Historians tell us that, that gangs of ethnically Irish, mostly younger men, came over from Bridgeport, and, uh, laid cables across many of the main roads in Bronzeville, and then began torching houses. The cables were laid across the road so that the fire department couldn't get through to put out the fires. A Provident Hospital here in, in Bronzeville was the first African-American owned and operated hospital in the country. And it was almost burned down in these riots as the gang surrounded the hospital. After the uh, riots, the state's attorney would accuse the police department of refusing to arrest any whites during the riots. Only African Americans. There was not one single white person who was convicted. 23 blacks, 15 whites died. 537 people were injured. Two-thirds of those were black. A thousand people were left homeless, most of them black. We don't live in Babel and we don't live in the New Jerusalem. We live in Chicago. There are other examples, of course. A Chinatown. Um, I don't know if you knew this. Chinatown used to be located in the Loop. Did you know that? In the 1920s, uh, rent prices got too high in the loop, so um, the merchants agreed to move down to its current location now. Um, but, but racism was so prevalent against any Asian person that there had to be an intermediary between the Chinese merchants and the landowners in order to sign over the lease to the property. Some of you know that Dr. King came to Chicago in 1966. He led marches protesting housing segregation, mostly on the west side, but he spoke at churches here on the south side as well. On one of those marches uh, on the west side, he was uh, knocked to his knees when someone threw a brick at his head. And he said about his time in Chicago that I have seen many demonstrations in the south, but I have never seen anything so hostile and so hateful as I have seen here today. We live in Chicago. We live um, in a very segregated city. The, the new census data, you can put up that map there, Brent. The new census data has identified uh, Milwaukee as the number one most segregated city in the country. New York City as the second most segregated city. And, getting the bronze medal, Chicago as the third most segregated city in the country. You don't have to read all the statistics or the percentages really well to get an idea of what you're looking at, right? We live neither in Babel or the New Jerusalem. We live in Chicago. And we know that it's not just our city, right? We know that it's our country. In our country, the wealthiest 
10% of the population possesses more than 70% of the wealth. In our country, twice as many Hispanics will drop out of high school than whites. There's a quote. In the United States, blacks remain twice as likely to be unemployed, three times more likely to live in poverty, and more than six times as likely to be imprisoned compared with whites. We live in Chicago. We live in the United States. We see headlines from around the world that talk about ethnic cleansing and genocide. Uh, and, And at our most honest moments, we understand that it's not just Chicago where the problem is. It's not just our country. It's not just our world. In our most honest moments, we will we'll look at ourselves, won't we? I will look at my own heart and understand my complicity. I will, I will acknowledge my own prejudice, my own way as a white man of benefiting from privilege and racism in our country. It's not just that there are problems out there, it's that my own heart is complicit. You see? I'm not going to claim that for you. You can claim that for yourself. Where's our hope? God's mission remains the same. God is reconciling humanity through Jesus. In Revelation, we see the final results of Christ's ultimate sacrifice. Every tribe, every language, every people, every nation, worshiping the one who is worthy. We see this. The lamb has already been slain. The victory has already been won. Which begs a question, shouldn't we expect evidence of this now? God's mission is present in our lives now. If God is reconciling the world to himself through Jesus now, could we not see evidence of it now? Shouldn't the church be the place where injustice is confronted now? Shouldn't the church be the place where disparity is eliminated now? Shouldn't the church be the place where prejudices are uncovered and repented of now? Shouldn't the church be the place where inferiority is healed now? Shouldn't the church be the place where systemic racism is called out now? How would you answer that? Yes. But why? But why after all we know, after all we've experienced, after the air that we have breathed, why after all of this, Would we actually hope for something different? Why should we even pursue the beloved community? To be frank, the church has often been right in the thick of injustice. So why should we hope for something? And 
here's the best I can do this morning. We continue to hope because God does not give up. Because we have a vision that begins in Babel and ends at the New Jerusalem. And so despite our experience, despite our circumstances, I think, I I pray that we can have hope this morning. Because this is not our vision, this is God's vision. This is not our intention, this is God's intention. And it has been true from beginning to end. If there's hope this morning, it's that God does not give up. The mission of God may trace through Babel, may end in Jerusalem, but cuts through Chicago as well. Amen? We have hope this morning. I hope, I pray we have hope this morning that Jesus Christ is still reconciling the world. So we live in Chicago. We live between two cities. We claim that the mission of God is ongoing. And that's a nice theology, isn't it? What does it look like? What does that actually look like for us? We're going to try to answer that over the next three weeks, okay? Two things come quickly to mind. The first is that we worship together. And depending on what you think about worship, that either sounds way too easy or way too hard. We're going to actually spend our fourth Sunday talking mostly about what it means for us to be a church that worships together. In some very practical ways. Okay? So I'm not going to say a lot about that together. So here's my second thought. What does it look like for us to claim that God's mission is still present, that God is still reconciling the world to himself, even now, even here? It means that we eat together. I don't know if that sounds profound to you. It doesn't sound profound to me at all. It actually sounds really, uh, pretty simplistic. Let me try to tell you what I mean here as we come to our close. What does it mean that God's mission is present here and now in the, in, in the midst of racism, of segregation, of sexism? What does it mean? It means that we eat together. How did Jesus represent the mission of God before his crucifixion? He healed people, right? He preached the gospel of the kingdom of God. But you know what else he did a whole lot of? He ate. Seriously. He ate. He ate chicken too. Is that what he said? Man, I, yeah, okay. That's what David said. That seems right. He ate. Jesus ate with the rich and the poor. Jesus ate with the religious and the religiously unclean. Jesus ate with tax collectors and prostitutes. Jesus ate. Jesus ate with people he wasn't supposed to eat with, so much so that he developed a bit of a reputation. Pharisees come to the disciples and they say, why is it that your teacher, your rabbi, eats with actors and sinners? Why is that? Jesus didn't eat. He ate intentionally. He ate people different than himself. Now, we're not talking about race because, frankly, there wasn't a category of race in this time. But we are talking about class. We are talking about religious separation. We are talking about chasms between people that never would have been crossed. Jesus sharing food with people he shouldn't have even been in the same room with, you see. Jesus ate with people. And how does Jesus close out his earthly ministry? What does he do? He serves a meal. 
Hours before he's going to be arrested, Jesus has his disciples find an upper room, provides the food, the bread and the wine. He sits down and he shares a meal with his disciples. He eats. And he says, my body will be broken, my blood will be shed for the reconciliation of the world. You see, Jesus eats. Of course, the largest chasm, right, is between a holy, perfect, loving God. Jesus, who was there at the creation of the world, sitting down with these 12 mangy disciples. One who was going to betray him in a minute. And he eats. He breaks bread. Now, maybe, maybe we say, well, this is just Jesus, right? So if Jesus eats, of course, it's going to be more than about eating. Jesus does something, it's always more than about that thing, right? Jesus tells a story, it's not just a story, it's about something else. Jesus eats, it's got to be more about than just the eating, right? It's Jesus. What about Peter? Peter, of course, is Jesus' maybe most passionate and obstinate and interesting disciple. Uh, Peter is praying on a rooftop after Jesus has ascended and he's given a vision from God of this food that comes down from heaven. Anybody remember the story in Acts? This food comes down from heaven and it is filled with every offensive food that a good Jew could have imagined. So I don't know if, if for you, if there are certain foods that you just won't eat, you know, maybe because of a conviction of some kind or, or, or maybe because it doesn't set well with your stomach or, or, or you just like me just hate broccoli, you know, whatever the thing, like it's a, it's a blanket full of every food that you would find offensive in any way comes down from heaven. And the voice says, Peter, take and eat. Well, what does Peter say? You remember? I've never eaten an unclean thing. I'm a good Jew. I wouldn't do that. A voice from heaven says, Peter, don't you call anything from the hand of God unclean. And then what happens? Knock at the door downstairs, and it's a Gentile. It's a Gentile. Inviting Peter to come over, to come into his house. I'm a good Jew. I wouldn't do that. But he does. Now, now we don't know if, if, if Peter eats a meal. We're not told that. I think he probably did. This is a culture of extreme hospitality. Been rude to not offer people food. Again, I'm speculating here, but I'm guessing that, that not only did Peter enter a Gentile's home and share fellowship with people who he, he would have found offensive before, he would have been distanced from before, I'm guessing they broke bread together. What does it mean? What does it mean? I've got a simple mind, so I've got to think simply about these things. What does it mean that God's mission runs through the heart of Chicago? What does it mean that God is reconciling the world to himself through Jesus now? What does that mean? What does that look like? Could it be that we start with eating together? Does that seem too easy? Could it be that we start by eating together, by sharing meals together? What happens with, when, when you eat with somebody? Fellowship, talk, you share. What happens when you have somebody into your home, into your space? Many of us Americans are pretty private people. It's our space. It's our, you know. What happens when we open up our homes? 
When we make available our space, our food, our stories, our listening ear, what happens to us? We change, don't we? Um, I didn't ask him for permission, but I'm going to tell it anyway. I met uh, Pastor Michael Washington. Some of you know he comes and preaches here sometimes. I, I, I met Pastor Michael in a class. He and I were in the same class at Wheaton Graduate School. He stood out because he was the only black man in the class. And we got to talking. And uh, My wife and I had been married a year. And, uh, and, and Michael was engaged to, to Dawn. Was Dawn in here? Oh, good. I can, keep, I can tell the story. Then. And, Dawn, and, and they were engaged. And, 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 and Maggie and I, we lived in this little apartment. And little is the right word. It was a little apartment with like brick walls like that. And... Um, and it was not nice, um, but it was okay. And, uh, and I said, Michael, could you come over for dinner? Could you, would like to meet your fiance, come over and have dinner with us? And they live, like, they live way on the south side at that point. We're way out in the western suburbs. But they did. He, he, he brought Dawn, Dawn, I don't remember her last name at that point, over to, over to dinner. And we fed them dinner. And I wish I could tell you what we ate, but I, I don't remember. Um, I don't, did we even have a dining room table then? I don't think we, we like, we sat on, like for a while we sat on laundry hampers in our apartment, you know, and, um, and we invited them over. We had this old ratty, nasty couch that we had like got, remember that? We had gotten it off of, uh, not Craigslist, they didn't have Craigslist then, just like somewhere we knew this college kid was giving away a couch, and so we, so we sat on this couch, and, um, and we ate, uh, and then they invited us into the city, and we ate again, and then we ate again, and then they invited us to their wedding, and, 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 and then we were like, well, we're some of the only white people in this space here, and that's interesting, down, down at Salem Baptist. And then we ate more, and we ate more, and, and, and it would be, we lived about an hour apart, so we would have, if they were going to come out, they were going to spend most of the day with us, because it's kind of a drive, you know. And so, and so what we would do is they would drive out, and then we'd all go to the grocery store together, and we, and we would we'd go shopping for food, and then we'd cook a meal. To, and we, that wasn't like a strategy. We just hadn't planned ahead, you know, and so, so we would just go to the grocery store, and we'd buy food, and, and then we would cook together. And... Um, and I'm, let me tell you, as mundane, as normal as you can get, nothing spectacular about it. Just cooking and eating together. And something kind of bubbles up when, when that happens. I don't know if you know. Something bubbles up when you eat with people. When you start listening to each other over food. When you start telling stories that just aren't going to come up otherwise. Something happens. And you begin to, 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 to understand a little bit what it's like to be you, and you get to understand a little bit what it's like to be me. And I begin to see myself in a different light and see I've got some stuff here that I, I, I can't have anymore that needs to go away. I need God to do something new in my life here. And out of this relationship comes a, a conversation over a restaurant where, where Maggie and I say, should we come, should we move into the city and, and join this church? Come on, staff at this church. And, and Maggie said, we're not going to do it if it's going to mess up this relationship. And I said, no, you guys should do it. So we come, we move into the city. Come on, staff at a new community. And, and then, and then we, have, we have another conversation over, over, over a dinner at a restaurant. 
And, uh, and we say, Michael and Don, we're thinking about adopting. And, and, th- and there's this possibility in front of us of adopting a child who's not going to be white. What do you think about that? Well, we, have, we have a lot of fears about that. We're not sure if we're able to do this, to parent this child. What? And they asked us some hard questions, some good questions, and they said some really smart things. And they said, you should do that. You should adopt that child. And they said, and, 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 and we're going to help you. We didn't know if it was going to be a boy or a girl. Michael said, now, if it's, if it's, if it's a boy, and, 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 you know, and, and then I'm going to have to take him to the barbershop because, <laughs> because you, Davis Watson, don't know anything about the barbershop, and you're not going to mess up this child in that way. And we joked about it, but those are words of life to me, you see. And so I, I, I want to end pretty simply this morning. We're going to continue getting into hard stuff over the next few weeks. Where, where next week we're going to be looking at the reality, the spiritual nature of, of racism, of division. And we're going to look at some hard stuff. And I'd ask that you pray for me, pray for us as we do that. We're going to look at the reality of systemic oppression in our country. The principalities and the powers, Paul called. We're going to look at some hard stuff. The week after that, Michelle is going to be up here with uh, a friend of mine who's an prof- uh, anthropology professor, and they're going to be having a conversation about white privilege. It's going to be hard. It's going to be difficult. It's going to be good. So I want to just leave us today with, with this idea of eating, of having a meal. You, you, you know by now that I love the imagery of, of the mustard seed. Jesus says that the kingdom of God comes in surprising sorts of ways. It comes like a mustard seed. You, you blink and you miss it. But it grows into something amazing. And, and so maybe we can just end here. Worship team, go ahead and come on up. Maybe we can just end here this morning. Jesus sits down the night that he's going to be betrayed and he, he celebrates what we call today the Lord's Supper. His body broken, his blood shed for us to reconcile us to God. Paul says not just to reconcile us to God, but to reconcile us to one another as well. We're going to actually end four weeks from now this series by sharing communion together, by serving one another at the Lord's table. Who who are you eating with these days? Who's in your space these days? Who has refrigerator rights in your home? Who can just walk right in and open your refrigerator? You see what I'm saying? Who is that? Who are those people? Who are you being opened up to these days over meals, over conversation? Who are you regularly with so that you walk away and you you see them and you see yourself and you see God in a new way? Where is the mission of God running right through our city and right through your lives as you break bread together? Is this too easy? Is this too simple? I want to put this in front of us as as maybe a little bit of hope this morning. It's huge. It's complicated. Racism, ethnocentrism, division has existed from the beginning. But Christ is present here now. And so there's hope for us here and now. And we don't just have to sit here and say, look at our church. we're, We're colorful. We're diverse. 
It's, it's more than that, isn't it? It's deeper than that, isn't it? It's certainly more complicated, but it's more wonderful than that, isn't it? So who are you eating with these days? Whose home are you in? Who are you going to go have a dinner with, lunch with after service today? What new foods are you being introduced to? What cultures and stories and traditions come along with those foods that you wouldn't have known about otherwise? What ways of seeing God will you be exposed to that you wouldn't know about otherwise? Did I say worship team come up? Did I say that? Come on up, worship team. I'm just going to keep on talking. As we eat together, church, as we eat together, as we worship together, we find that God's mission of reconciliation is happening still today. It didn't stop. And it's not that we just wait for the day when Jesus returns and makes all things right. It's that Jesus is at work now. So we can expect reconciliation now. We can expect expect new ways of worshiping God now. We can expect transformation now. Worship is available that reflects God's love for a diverse world right now. Minds that are healed from prejudice and inferiority are available right now. Deep and transforming relationships between people who share only Jesus in common are available now. Hope for a city that has known division, disparity, and divisiveness from its beginning is available now. Amen? Amen. Why don't you stand? I will pray. We will worship together. We scratch the surface today, Lord. We, we want to start with worshiping We want to start by acknowledging your power. We want to start with the reality that you have been the same from the beginning to the end, that your intentions have not changed. We want to start by by acknowledging and rejoicing in the fact that a diverse humanity and all of its complexity and all of its beauty was your desire from the beginning and will be what you rejoice in at the end. Thank you, Lord, that you don't call us to become something that we're not in order to be acceptable to you, but that you come and dwell with us as we are. We thank you that though we live between these two cities, that though we live in a city where there are hard realities, not just out there, but in our own hearts, despite all of this, your mission of reconciliation cuts through us. Thank you that because of Jesus and the sacrifice of Christ, we've been reconciled to you. The the largest chasm has been closed. And we are invited into reconciliation with each other. So my prayer for us, Lord, as as we end our time, my prayer for us is that this wouldn't be knowledge in our heads. That we would sit down and share meal together. Share story together share our lives together. We know these things don't happen quickly. We know that these things develop over years and years and years. But we ask, God, that you would give us the courage to move from thinking to doing and experiencing what you have for us, God. 
Allow us maybe today new eyes to see the power of sharing a meal together, of sharing conversation together, of sharing our lives together. Some of us, God, we want to change the world and we want to do it yesterday. Some of us want to make all, all, all of the evil disappear. We want that to happen. And, and, and God, I pray for us, for those of us who have that desire, that you would help us to be, to be content with you doing a new work in our own hearts. Even as you call us to participate in your massive mission in our city and in the world. Help us to see the mustard seeds of the kingdom popping up all around us even as we eat together, as we share stories together, as we tell about our traditions and our cultures and why we think the way we do and where we came from and the pain in our past and the beauty in our past. opposition to your work in our city and in our lives. So we commit ourselves to your protection to do this work in us and through us. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. big challenge. Go eat. Um, And acknowledge the presence of Christ in the little things in our midst. Amen. Acknowledge that God is already at work here. Amen. Acknowledge the fact that, that, that you and I are in this room together worshiping today. Amen. God is a even as we dig into some challenging stuff and even as you maybe have some challenging conversations over lunch groups acknowledge start with the fact that the cross is in the victory has been won yeah Lord Jesus send us out now as people who rejoice and celebrate in the humanity that you have made us to be in all of its diversity Empower us to live out the mission that you are about in our day, in our city, and in our lives. Thank you for not giving up. Thank you for not getting tired. Thank you that you will accomplish what you set out to do. And thank you, Lord, we can experience it and know it and be transformed by you now and today. So encourage our hearts, Lord, even as you convict us. We honor you. We praise you. Thank you. We look forward to the days ahead of what you're going to keep on doing in our lives. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Go in peace.